Good morning. Uh, my name is Trevor. If you're new, I'm a member of All of Life, and uh, I've had the privilege of just kind of leaning into uh, a desire more and more to, to teach and to know God's Word. Uh, so I'm excited to do that with you guys today. Like Jared said, uh, today is the, the last of four sermons that I've kind of been in a run of doing, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, at the end of last Sunday, um, Jared's kind of used a, a kind of a joke or an image in the past of like when you're, when you're preaching, it's like you're just pregnant every single week. Um, please don't dismiss that. Ladies, we understand there's more to that. But I, I told Jared, uh, I texted him at like 1.45 yesterday and said, Jared, I just found out I'm pregnant again. Manuscript is due Thursday. Um, so I've kind of been feeling that every week it's, it's there. And yet there's something really beautiful that I've been enjoying. Uh, and so I appreciate you giving me the chance of like, I just, it, it obligates me into God's word. And I have found over and over and over, week after week, it is good. Um, to, be, to be frank, this week has been a terrible week. Uh, I have not wanted anything to do with God uh, or his word or his presence, and I've been mad at him. And yet, um, the text that we're in this week is in Matthew 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Uh, and so, the, the duty of teaching has forced my heart into God's presence, and it's been good this week. And so I hope uh, us going through this is, is good for us as a church family. Now, I, I, like I said, we're going through ask and you will receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be open to you. Uh, and this is pr a pretty like common, famous passage. We've at least heard these words thrown out. Um, and we can misapproach this as thinking that we need to believe hard enough, understand well enough, do enough, 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 so that God will give us what we want, right? Um, and that's actually not at all what the case is here. And so I hope that we enjoy the good news baked within this. So would you read this with me? This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. It says this, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For every one who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, um, all three of those kind of commands, ask, seek, knock, can be understood as metaphors for prayer, right? Our, our ongoing person-on-person -person relationship with God. Um, but they're also, I think it's important to realize prayer is not in its own like conceptual category. Prayer is actually at the core of our lives and our lives focus shared with God, Right? So prayer is not its own thing. Prayer is actually at the core of who we are and how we're living and what we're seeking. And so um, I think that's important to remember. And as I consider this, right, we talked about that this can be misapproached. And we're trying to get at what the heart of it is. I think the, the question that I've been asking is simply, like almost stupidly simple. Like what does Jesus actually want us to hear? And also like how does he want us to feel at the end of this. And part of the reason I ask that is, is as I've engaged with this before and, and heard some teaching, it, it can <clears throat> often be like, how do we whip ourselves into belief and whip ourselves into a frenzy of like, I'm going to ask and I'm going to, and I don't know if that's what he's wanting us to feel. Like, I wonder if there's something more that like, is there, is he wanting us to feel a subdued determination at the end of this? Is he wanting us to feel fervor? Like, what does he want us to feel when he's done, he was speaking to real life humans. What did he want them to hear and how did he want them to feel? And I think there's two main things that I wanna point us at. One, so I think he's, it's pretty clear he's not getting into any complexity. The Bible never hides the fact that God is his own distinct person who answers prayers according to his will and plan. It never hides that. And so Jesus, is, it's clearly he's not contradicting that. It's just, he's not going there. And so he's saying, ask, seek, knock. Your father is good. So he's not going into the complexity of it, but he's wanting to reassure us. He's wanting us at the bare minimum to stay in the game, right? He's saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep 
knocking. It will be fruitful because your father is good. And that's the second thing. He's reassuring us that our father is good. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good things, how much more will your good father who is in heaven give good things? So those are the two things he's at bare minimum reassuring us. And I think the result of both of those things is he wants to awaken in us faith. He wants us to have renewed faith, a security that says, I will ask, I will seek, I will find, regardless of all the questions. I know my father is good. I am secure. The language he uses later in chapter seven is, I will build my house on the rock. So that when the the storms and the wind come, I will be secure, right? So our plan for today is we got three main points and then some application. We're just going to look at ask, seek, and knock in the context of Matthew. Uh, When I first started reading this, my brain started initially going like, oh, where are all the different passages I can draw on and kind of say what I want to say? And I just like hit pause on that and thought, what if Matthew just, the recorder, gives us context for understanding these things? So we're going to pretty truly stay within Matthew and just look for context. And then we're going to consider like that second point that Jesus makes is God's goodness. Is he good? And then the reality is all of us, every single one of us have questioned God's goodness. And we're just going to talk about like, what do we do with that? Um, and then we're going to consider some application. So ask, seek, and knock in Matthew. First, we're going to look at ask. What is the, any contextual reference for asking within Matthew? I think the first silent ask that gets created in us is just the result of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful description of what it looks like for humans to be in need before God, meek before one another, merciful towards each other, right? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It it talks about what it looks like for humans to have a, a holy understanding of lust, and anger, and what it looks like to be pure in heart in those things, and have pure relationship with God. And so, like, the first ask that I think comes up is just like, God, I want that. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount sounds beautiful, and I wish my life looked like that. Father, would you give that to me, and would you help me in that process? Like, that's just the first ask. Um, And where I see some Uh, reinforcement with this is actually in Luke chapter 11. I know I said we were going to stay within Matthew. Forgive me. Um, In Luke chapter 11, it is a parallel passage. It's almost word for word, and it should be up on the screen. But notice the way that it ends is it says, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew uses the words, how much more will your father give good things? And Luke really like just puts his finger right on it and says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit? The reason this is important is, right, think of the Sermon on the Mount. How much can I be transformed into the person described in the Sermon on the Mount without the presence of God in my life? There's zero opportunity, zero chance. It's a fruitless endeavor. And so what God ultimately is saying is, I want to be made like the Sermon on the Mount, and I need God's Spirit. Father, would you make me like this, and would you give me your Spirit in the process? Now, I would say that that is primary, though not exclusionary, right? Matthew does choose, as author, to say good things. So Matthew and Mark, or excuse me, Matthew and Luke seem to take a, a broad truth that, that Jesus was speaking and choose to highlight certain components. If you remember uh, Matthew chapter 6, where it says, don't be anxious what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. Remember, your father knows you need these things. And he's talking about material provision. And so it's likely that the Holy Spirit is a driving need, but there's also more going on in how we ask and what we ask for. Matthew's not blind to that. So that's the first just ask in Matthew. It's the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. God, I want it. I need your presence. Would you remake me like this? The second place that we see asking, remembering that asking is prayer before God, right? The natural place is to go to like, what does Jesus talk about with prayer, right? So we're going to go backwards a little bit to chapter six on Jesus's instruction on prayer. And he says this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. And we see pretty clearly, um, 
just in this little bit alone, is that God's saying, don't use your prayer or your asking to glorify yourself. Whether it's the reward of people's esteem of you or the ask itself is actually going to result in your own glorification. This next uh, line we see, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I think Jesus is saying, like, you have the freedom to ask without fear of having the right words, the right formulas, the right method. You just get to ask simply, directly. Through the safety of your relationship with the Father, you just get to say, God, I want, I need. And he hears us. He knows our needs and he hears us. And then Jesus continues on into the Lord's prayer itself and he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those, or as we also have forgiven our trespassers or our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice this is a list of asks, right? This is Jesus saying, bring your asks directly to the Father. And I want to point out that this is less formula so much as heart. He's not giving us, like he said, don't heap up empty words like the Gentiles do. He's not giving us empty words. He's trying to say this is the heart behind prayer. And the heart behind prayer is, number one, this, our Father in heaven. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things? We're identifying him as a good Father. Number two, holy be your name. The first request we are to have, the first ask that our heart should yearn for is the holiness and the glorification of God. Again, do not pray to glorify yourselves, but pray to glorify God. Second, or third, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You'll remember this from Matthew chapter six. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We identify God as a father. We pursue his glorification and we do that through seeking first his kingdom. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, right? Father, I do need, I need. Would you provide for me? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us or trespass against us. Like, God, have mercy on me. I need your mercy, right? We talked about this last week. I need your mercy, but also make me merciful, right? That is our request. Make me like the kingdom described in the Sermon on the Mount. Give me your spirit and make me like that. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? Father, I desire personal holiness. I desire your, your spirit within me that's transforming me. It changes the way I deal with my sin. Right? All of this is rooted in seeking first the kingdom of heaven and God's glorification, right? So the third place that we're going to look in, this, in Matthew, so the first place was just the Sermon on the Mount, the fact that we need help. Second place, we looked at uh, Jesus' description of prayer, and that prayer is a bunch of asks for God's glorification, right? Um, and then the third place we're going to look is just the fact that Jesus goes all over the place and heals folks. Like, that's pretty cool. Now, so uh, we're going to go through that relatively quickly, um, but we're going to look at a few examples. The first one is in Matthew chapter 8. This is at the exact conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and it reads like this. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper, a man with a skin disease, came to him and he knelt before him and said, Lord, if you will, Lord, would you please make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy, his skin disease was cleansed. And then the next paragraph, when he'd entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward, appealing to him, asking him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And I'm going to skip the middle part. And Jesus concludes and says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And then we're going to jump forward one more chapter to Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him and they cried aloud. 
Have mercy on us, son of David, please, right? And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. So that portion of Matthew is not all about asking, right? Primarily, it's about belief versus unbelief, how we receive the kingdom of God and receive Jesus as king. And so I don't want to put too much of this onto that passage, but I think it's worth drawing from at least a little bit, right? And, And in these ways, realizing that people are asking. They're asking, right? And Jesus says, because of your faith, because you have believed, And so I wonder, like, what would have happened to these people if they had no assurance that Jesus wanted them to ask in the first place? If they saw Jesus but thought, he probably just wants me to leave him alone. And they also had no assurance that he was good and would heal them. If they had thought, he probably just wants me to leave him alone and he probably won't do anything for me anyways. So the reality in all of those situations is if they had not asked, they would not have received. So we do, like, asking. Like, we need. Asking does initiate something within the kingdom of God. And again, there's complexity. There's details that Jesus is not getting into in that. But what is core is that, like, he's creating assurance. I want you to ask. A desire to give good things, right? That's what he's pointing us to. And so with those three different ways we were thinking of, there's three main takeaways that I want to point us to about asking within the context of Matthew. Point number one is this, that when we ask for anything at all, it should be for the sake of God's glorification and not our own. It doesn't mean that his provision for us can't bring glory to him, but his provision for us should not be for our own glory. It should be for his. Second thing that we see is that he just, he invites us. He wants us to ask him very directly. He says, you don't need to heap up empty phrases. You don't need all the right formulas. Just come to me like a child to their father and ask. And the second thing is that he is remaking us through the Holy Spirit. Like that is a driving motivation for him. He wants the Spirit in our lives so that we are transformed. Not just here and now, but we also have future life and redemption. So that brings us to seeking, right? Seeking within the context of Matthew. Seeking is similar to asking, but it's a little bit different. So as we get here, I think the first question we have to ask, what's the main theme of Matthew? Does anyone remember? Anyone remember? Kingdom, right? talked about that. Uh, like we, um, This is the language we say over and over, and we kind of forget it because we say it so much. It's all about the kingdom of God. That's because the king is here. And his very first words in Matthew chapter 4 was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something has changed because of all of this. Everything is drastically different to the point that our only pursuit and our first priority should be the glorification of the king and his kingdom come and his will be done. And we've defined the kingdom of God as the rule and the reign of God in the hearts and the lives of men and women. So that's really what this is all about. It's about what does it look like for God to rule and reign in your life, in your heart, and in us as a community and as a world. And so where I think this is really like, surprising, Jesus' first sermon was repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what happens? He does a bunch of miracles, he continues teaching, and Matthew chapter four ends like this. A bunch of people start following him around because they're seeking something. They don't really know what, but there's this guy doing crazy stuff. And they're like, I want whatever it is. Like, I'm going to seek after this. And the very first thing Jesus does is he goes up on a mountain and he describes the kingdom of God. He gives them the sermon on the mount. When he sees them seeking something otherworldly, he gives them a description of the kingdom of God. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
He says, seek first God's rule and reign in your life, in your heart. The sentence where he says that comes immediately after where he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And money is really a placeholder there. Uh, It's an example. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and your own image. You cannot serve both God and your own self goals, right? And so what he's giving us is a decisive loyalty that says, I will seek first your kingdom, your rule and your reign in my heart, in the lives of my family. Like that is what I am about. Not only about those qualities in me, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? I will also seek not only your kingdom in me, but your kingdom around me. I want to participate in that. And we see that really clearly in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all of the cities and the villages, and he taught in the synagogues. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He healed every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray, ask earnestly, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So a motivation for our asking, what it looks like for you and I to seek it is not just to say, God, would you make laborers? It's like, God, would you make me? Would you make my labor with you in your kingdom fruitful? Would you help me go out into the harvest with clarity, seeking first your kingdom? So when we consider seeking within the context of Matthew, we have three more key takeaways. Number one, that seeking the kingdom of God is really good for you and I. Again, seeking the kingdom of God establishes his rule and his reign in our hearts. And that is good and beautiful and liberating and transformative. And it's exactly what a good father would want for us. Second thing is that God's rule and reign in our hearts and our lives should be our first, and I would dare to say, only priority. And the third thing is that seeking the kingdom of God actually means participating firsthand in his mission. And we come to knocking. What does it look like to knock within the context of Matthew? So again, knocking is a metaphor for prayer, right? can kind of knock on God's presence. But it can also, again, be understood within relationship to the kingdom of God. The reason I'm, I'm kind of connecting that is, um, again, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uh, refers to a gate. Um, let me pull this up real quick. He says this, enter by the narrow gate or the narrow door, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life or the kingdom of God. And those who find it are few. So we're first introduced to this idea of like entry to the kingdom of heaven. Like we're beginning like to attach the image of a door or a gate, right? And we see that yet again in Matthew chapter 23. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 23 verse... 13. And Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees who at this point have created a system of religiosity, essentially a system of of self-righteousness. And this is what Jesus describes the effect of that. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And this is why he says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus is literally saying you're shutting the door to heaven in people's faces through your systems of self-righteousness. The fact that you're telling people and creating systems where you can utter the right phrases, do the right things, and earn your way into God's kingdom is like slamming a door in their face. And I would use the image of locking it. 
But Jesus contradicts that. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Rather than coming to the doorway with a platform of self-righteousness, he says, come to the doorway and knock with need. And just say, God, I don't deserve this. Like, I need your mercy in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we see when Jesus says, knock and it will be open, is there's a distinction between knocking on a platform of our own self-righteousness and knocking on the doorway of Christ, the doorway of mercy into God's kingdom. And so here's our main takeaway, understanding knocking within the context of Matthew. God wants to open the door. He's literally saying, knock. I want to open it for you, but knock on the right door. If you go around there and say, hey, let me in. I've done all this stuff. He said, it's not going to work. But if you knock on this door and say, I need mercy. He says, I want to open it. I'm like literally standing there like, come on, knock, knock, knock. And that's good news for us. Because God is a good father, there's evidence here that God is wanting to open the door because he is a good father, which is our second main point. The goodness of God is why we ask and seek and knock. Jesus here is not saying, here's all the right ways to ask, all the right ways to seek, and all the right ways to knock. He's saying, ask, seek, and knock because your father is good. Bruner, in his uh, commentary on this, says um, on page 345, he says, Jesus is trying to bring us by any means possible to the Father. Hands out, mouths open. We're not supposed to have a dumb, meaning a mute relationship with God, in which he's so divine and, or that he shouldn't be bothered or we are so sinful that we shouldn't try. Jesus wants us to ask. He wants us to want to come to the Father because the Father is good. And that ultimately is our third point, which is this. I'm not sure if he's good. The Bible says so. I want to believe so. But God, what about? Again, I think 100% of us in this room have legitimate reasons to say, God, are you? Are you really that good? When I ask, do you answer? When I knock, are you present? And I used an, a quote from Donald Whitney a while back, and it went something like this. How much more could God give you than himself? Consider if God gave you a million dollars every single day for the rest of your life, but locked you out of heaven. What if God made you the most beautiful person in the world and gave you a hundred lifespans and yet at the day of your death shut you out of his kingdom? And that, that quote is beautiful and it's true, but something I've been wrestling with is that, God, I'm not asking for a million bucks. I'm not asking to be beautiful. I'm asking that someone won't die. I'm asking like, I'm here with a broken heart because there's evil in the world and I feel it and I know it. Like this is not flippant. Like we're not knocking on his door saying, I don't think many of us are actually doing the whole like wealth health thing. Like God, give me a mansion and a fancy car. I think we're here because there's pain in our lives that's real. And we've prayed over things that our hearts break over. And I don't think Jesus is ignoring that, nor in his commands is he just telling us that it doesn't matter. Because I think the reality when we come to him and say, God, why? Why have I asked? Why have I sought? Why have I knocked? And yet, and then when we come to him or when we come with those four questions or with that question, I think there's only four possible explanations that we need to consider. The first thing we need to consider is what if there's no God in the first place? Is that why we're knocking on the door, why we're asking, and it's just empty? The other possibility is that what if God is just some vague force like karma and he has no ears to hear you in the first place? And so we're, we're seeking, we're knocking, we're doing all the things, but we've got it totally backwards and he's just some divine entity that doesn't hear us. Or the third option is that 
God does have a specific personality. He does have ears to hear, but he just doesn't care. You ask and he's like, you're not important enough. I think what scripture teaches, and, and I think this is the most rational description of the universe also, is that God does have a specific personality. He does have a specific character. He does have ears. And I think he does care. I think what scripture teaches, and what I think is the most rational way of understanding the universe, is that he's there and he cares, but he has a perspective that we don't. And part of the reason I think that um, in, in a short story is um, my wife Whitney and I have, um, ever since we, I think our third date, uh, talked about the shared desire where we want to foster and or adopt at some point in our lives. Um, and that's been a shared value of ours. Um, and just a couple weeks ago, we were laying in bed and considering like, what, like, what if we began adopting or fostering? Like, we have a heart for that. Like, when, when's a good time for that? And part of what spurred that conversation is that there's a real life little girl, I think she's five years old, that we know who lives in a single family home. And um, this little girl, uh, because she lives in a, a somewhat chaotic single family home, uh, she has a, kind of a weird diet, right? Lots of processed foods, lots of sugar. Um, her, her family is nomadic. They move around a lot. And so that means she doesn't get babysitters. Uh, when, when the parent needs to go to work, she gets a cell phone. And so she watches YouTube or whatever else the game is, and that's her babysitter. Um, because of that situation, uh, she has lots of freedom. She kind of gets to do whatever she wants. Um, she, because of that, she doesn't know how to read. Uh, she's five years old and doesn't know how to count to 10. Um, and so we were thinking, like, what if, just kind of using her as an example, what if we brought her into our home? What would that be like? And the reality is if, if you brought a child into your home, they would come with needs, sincere needs. But the reality is if, like this little girl, if we brought her into our home, there'd probably be excitement and gladness on both sides. But at some point it would come down to, hey, I want what I've always had. I want the processed foods. No, 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 that's not good for you. No, I want it. <laughs> that's what I like. Uh, Whitney and I have a, a relationship towards technology. We're trying to minimize it. And we've, uh, we're just thinking, like, how would this little girl respond if we said, no, there's limits on your technology? Instead, we're going to encourage you towards inquisitiveness and imaginative play. And we want to, like, encourage you to do your homework and learn how to read. But how would she respond in that moment? I don't want that. I want my tablet. And so the reality of... of whether it was that child or any child, is if we brought a, someone into our home and we had a desire to love them well, they would come, on, come in asking and seeking for their own set of things. And as loving parents, we would have to shape their desires and their goals. We would have to reteach them an entirely new way of living, entirely new way of seeing the world. What this means is good parents say no. And they say, I know you don't understand. I know what you want. I know, like, I know you've got your own priorities, your own hurts, your own pains, but I have a perspective you don't. And out of love, I'm reshaping you. And yet there's something important with this, is if, if we did bring this little girl into our home, I don't think what we would want is to say, hey, you're asking for all the wrong things. You're seeking the wrong stuff. Your desires are whack. Just be quiet and let me give you what you need. I think as a loving parent, we would say like, hey, keep asking. Like, we're going to work through this together. Like, tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. And I'm going to be there in the process. And I'm going to like through loving relationship desire to shape you over time. You can trust me even when you ask for something when you extend yourself in vulnerability and say, I need, I want. I'm not going to just like smack you in the face. I'm going to lovingly meet you there. And yet also with the perspective that I have as a loving parent, shape you over time. And so as, as you and I ask and seek and knock, like probably <laughs> we're not asking and seeking and knocking 
for the right things. And that's just our limited perspective, right? And God's not up in the sky condemning us. He's actually with us, sent his spirit to live among us and saying, you can trust me. Like bring your real life asks and needs and seekings. And those actually serve as worship. Asking is not only selfish because asking for me says, God, I don't want to ask you. I don't trust you right now. And so as I hear Jesus's words, I hear again, like, you can ask me and you can trust me in this moment. So asking is actually worshipful remembering of his goodness, even when our hearts are turned away. Now, how do we do that? This is our, our final point of moving into application and considering like, that's hard. Our questions are real. What I don't think Jesus is saying is go off into a corner by yourself and learn how to ask the right, for the right things, learn how to seek in the right way and learn how to knock with the right motivations. Don't go away and then come back when you figured it out. I think what Jesus is saying is ask, knock, seek, keep doing it. I'm going to transform you in this process. And I've introduced this, this little three-word tool a couple weeks ago, but I'm bringing it back because it's uh, so helpful in this. And it is um, perfect to connect. Perfect to connect, meaning I need to perfect myself in order to connect with you. That's the version of go off in the corner, figure your junk out, and then come back, right? as opposed to what God is really saying, which is saying, connect with me in order to perfect yourself or sanctify yourself. I can connect with him in the middle of my imperfection, in the middle of my doubts and my anger and my mistrust, and I can just show up with all of that in honesty. And it's actually my connection with him that resolves those things. It's my connection with him that leads towards my sanctification. And this, again, is the gospel. While we were dead in our trespasses and our imperfection, he reached out to us and said, don't, don't hide and perfect yourself first. He's saying, you actually need me. You need me. And I want you. Like, let me bring you in in your imperfection. and Let me perfect you. And I think the reality is we bring our disappointments to him is that our Father hurts with us. We're not going to read it, but my brain goes to Romans chapter 8, where the writer says, like, the whole world is groaning. The whole world is like sobbing over like what's wrong. And the Spirit of God in you prays for those groanings that are too deep for words, because your Father also groans with us. God holds space for you and I to be mad. When we show up mad at his doorstep, when we finally like come back into the relationship and just say like, I need you. He says, I know. I knew you were mad. I knew you were hurt. Me too. I was so hurt. I sent my son to save you. I was so mad at the situation you're in. I sent my son to redeem it, to remake everything new. And this is our final evidence for, is God a good father? I sent my son. It was so bad and I was so hurt and heartbroken for you in the world that I sent my son. And I've, I think I've, I've thought those words a hundred times and yet this week they hit me in a new way. Where God loved us so much that he sent his child He sent his child for us. He's a good father. And Jesus is saying he's a good father. He will give good things and you can trust him. And you can keep asking and you can keep seeking and you can keep knocking. And as I've considered this, 
What it's done for me this week is it's convicted me in this way. I've realized that um, Jesus in this, right? He's, he's kind and he's compassionate. And he's saying, ask, seek, knock. Your father is good. And he says that with gentleness. But I think he also sends, like, says that with strength. Which I think is ultimately, we want a father and an authority in our lives who's both kind and strong at the same time. We want a father who hears us out, but also transforms us in good ways. Who stands up for himself and his plan, and he ushers us and guides us in that process. And this is how I think he does it. Is as much as he's encouraging us and saying, keep asking, keep knocking, keep going. Your father is good. I think he also says this. Ask. You gotta ask. Like, you gotta seek. You can't seek my kingdom from a chair. Like, you've got to get up. You can't knock on the door of heaven with passivity. And I felt that conviction because honestly, like, there's been pains in my life where I've questioned God's goodness to the point that I've said, like, God, I don't really want to be that close with you right now. I'll pray. I'll do the stuff. Like, I love you, but I don't want to do it. And what that's resulted in is, and I've been convicted of this, is my askings have been nearly non-existent. My seekings have been passive or apathetic. My knocking has been half-hearted. And so he's corrected me by saying, you also have a role. Like You need to ask. You have to want it. Now, trust me, I will, I will give it to you. I will meet you when you seek. I will open the door, but you got to ask. And so my question and my application for myself and for us is just like, what are we currently asking for, if at all? Are we too afraid, too hurt, too lazy to ask? Or just maybe just not used to it? Like, what are we seeking? Are we actually seeking anything spiritual at all? Or, or for hurt or for apathy or whatever reason, are we just like present but not really engaged? And this has been my conviction. I say this with no superiority. But I've had to question like, what am I asking for? And would it be more fruitful, more God-honoring, more life-giving for me to say, Father, I want your Holy Spirit. Father, would you give that to me? I ask you for your Holy Spirit in my life. Father, would you search my heart? Show me what I'm seeking after, what I'm putting my hope in. Would you convict me? Would you reshape me? Here's everything I have. Would you use it for your glory? Would you use it for my healing? Would you use it for your kingdom? And in all of that, um, to be honest, I have not plumbed the depths of those questions for myself. I know that's going to take time, but what I want to remember for myself, and I encourage us to remember, is again, what is the gospel? We can connect with the Father in our apathy, in our passivity, and in our repentance. And it's through that that he brings us life. He brings us into the family. So he's not saying, go off, get the desire, get the Holy Spirit, get all the right actions, and then come to me. He's saying, come to me. He's saying, God, I don't want you. Help me to want you. Would you give me your spirit? And this is our rest. Father has already, if you're following Christ, the Father has already opened the door. You're already in the family. Not because you have earned it, but because he's so loved you that he's washed you clean through Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, you are good. Um, Father, would you help me be a, a son who comes to you with my, even my questions and my mistrust? Would you help us as sons and daughters trust you enough, worship you in our questioning and our asking? 
Father, you meet us. You meet us. You want to open the door for us. Holy Spirit, would you come to us? Father, I ask for your spirit in in my heart to help me to see you fresh, to create transformation in our hearts and bring glory to yourself because it will result in our good in the process. Amen. Um, We're going to take communion in a moment, but we've got a few minutes where, as a a church, we just get a question. Question Jesus is teaching. You get a question my words or presentation of it. We get to respond. Um, We talk about response a lot in these. Um, We kind of mention it, but I I would really love if someone was so brave to the point that you shared your response to Christ in this moment. Give your questions 100%. But if you would, also just say, like, here's how this hits me. Here's what it does in me. Um, You can do that by emailing or texting questions at olivelife.church, and that will go back to those guys. It'll go through the computer and then make its way to me. Um, Do we have any questions digitally? Awesome. Um, This first question is participation in his kingdom. How do I actively step into versus fall into it, because at times I may feel like I am obligated to? How do I actively step into it versus fall into it, because at times I may feel like I'm obligated to? Um, I'm going to try to answer this well. I'm trying to wrap my head around some of the like um, step into, fall, obligation language. But what I think I hear you saying is, like, how do I choose to engage out of more than legalistic obligation? Like, how do I choose to step in or choose to fall in? And like, can I choose without legalism? And can I fall in? Like, is there a greater way than just accidentally doing it? Um, yeah, the, this might be a, not a perfect answer, but my, my best, um, best response would be the way that all of us as followers of Jesus actively step into participation um, and avoid the despair of obligation is by remembering always what Christ has done for us and the, the good news that he came first to save us. And now that we are saved, we can't earn any greater pleasure in the Father's eyes. And so the truth is, Every single one of us who call Christ our king are obligated. It's our role. That's our job. Seek first the kingdom of God. You cannot serve two masters. Uh, Jesus uh, at one point says like to the degree, like I've come not to bring peace, but the sword. I've come to divide who's in, like who's following me and who's not. Um, and he, he says that with mercy and grace. But so the truth is like we, we are obligated, right? but not in order to earn our spot. The fact is he's already been gracious to us. And so I say like, Father, my new role in your family is this. And the ways that we avoid like falling into despair is the the simple truth that we're going to do it wrong. We're just going to do it wrong. And his grace is sufficient in all of those times. And we, we come back to him over and over and over and say, God, I do desire. I want to desire. Would you help me to desire and to follow through? Um, yeah, if that doesn't answer your question, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Is there any more questions or responses? How do I differentiate between asking God for things that will bring him glory because, versus my own selfish wants? <laughs> because I can rationalize a lot. Um, boy, I really respect you for just like being blunt. Uh, the fact that you can honestly just say like, I can rationalize a lot. Um, makes me think like you're probably queuing in on when you're rationalizing stuff. It's like you probably already know like, I'm kind of rationalizing this. Um, so I think you already have quite a bit of self-awareness. Uh, the follow-up I would give is like, God's not going to give you a bad gift. If you're asking for a bad gift, he's not going to answer it. But the more you bring it to him and say, Father, is this a good gift that I'm asking for? 
you might ask for it for a year or two or five, and then at some point be like, oh man, I've realized I probably wasn't very helpful. Um, and he's still like your loving father in the process. Remember, he's not saying, go away, come back when you can ask for the right things. He's saying, come here, keep asking. Like, let's talk about this. What are you asking for? Why are you asking for it? Right? Let's work through this as a father and a child. Any other questions or responses? Nope. Would anyone like to raise their hand and just share a question or response? We've got one more minute. Was I mentioned the story about the five-year-old and, and some of the dysfunctional family dynamics. How would someone prepare themselves for a fostering environment? Um, I'm going to make this brief because this is not my specialty. I've never fostered anyone. I've thought about fostering people. Um, the most helpful thing that any single human being in the world can do to prepare themselves to foster is to experience the grace of Christ. Because the greatest thing that any parent, fostering or natural born, can do is to love God themselves to the point that they understand mercy and grace and kindness. Because if you don't understand God the Father's mercy and grace and kindness, you will be hard-pressed to show it in any meaningful way to your child, adopted or natural. Um, would you pray and then we'll take communion? Father, uh, even as I say those last words, um, just remember yet again, like what we're doing this morning is we're worshiping your grace and your kindness, the fact that your spirit is among us, bringing life and joy, bringing freedom. As much as it's hard to come and ask you questions and to say, Father, I don't trust you. Like what joy there also is in saying our Father is so good that we can question him and he doesn't run out on us or abuse us. Jesus, we love you. Amen.